For this broadcast, I will present part two of a live recording from Ancestral Inc., a symposium honoring indigenous tattoo traditions, which took place on Tewatiwa ancestral lands of what is known as Santa Fe, New Mexico, on August 18, 2019. This symposium brought together indigenous tattoo pr practitioners and cultural bearers from the Pacific and North America who are the forerunners on the revival of traditional cultural tattoo practices. This event provided space and time for informative, engaging, and inspiring forum that celebrated the resurgence and resilience of indigenous peoples and traditional tattooing practices. We will hear from Inupiaq tattoo practitioner Marjorie Tabone, a panel discussion by Native California cultural bearers who have been part of the renewal and reawakening of their tattoo traditions, including Lauren Bomelin, Lena Bomelin, L. Frank Manriquez, Sage La Pena, and Tiffany Adams. Corey Kamehana Okal Hot Tom who is Kanaka Maoli, will introduce Master Tattoo Practitioner Kione Nunez. Please visit our website at www.brokenboxespodcast.com to learn more about the full program, listen to the first part, and read about each featured tattoo practitioner and cultural bearer you will hear on this broadcast. And I am a tattooist. I am an Inuit Kakinyip practitioner. Our tattoos are called Kakinyit. Kakinyit. Kakinyit is an ancient form that we've had since time immemorial. It's one of the forms that we as women have been able to carry on for centuries. And has only recently, the last century or so, has been asleep and is now being reawoken by other women across Inuit territory. My family comes from Wales in Alaska. It's the, it's the westernmost tip in the contiguous United States. And my roots are Inupiaq and Kaiwa. My daughter, her name is Ingmarana. I get my tattoos for her. I get my tattoos for the next generation. I was taught that we have to think about how we rebalance and reinstill our identity as Inuit and Inuit women. I started my journey as a Inuit, uh, as a tattoo, as a person who loves tattoos in the early 2000s, and I began by working to earn my Tavlugun, my chin tattoo, and as a young Inuk. I was trying to figure out the reasons why we tattooed because at that time they were, all, they were only on pictures of our ancestors, of old images of my great-great-grandmother 
and there was no real understanding of why we did them. When I asked the elders, they would say, they were just for beauty. I don't know, they just did them. That's something from a long time ago because it had been so long since we had practiced them in ceremony. I have come to learn that our tattooing practices were meant to maintain balance with ourselves, with the relationships with each other, and with the relationship with the earth because our women are so powerful. When a young woman because of, becomes of marriageable age a long time ago, that generally meant when they started their menstruation cycle, they must get their chin tattooed in order to respect the animals that are around because we are so powerful, we can't offend them. So in order for us to maintain that peace, we tattooed our faces. We also, as young women, needed to prepare for the pain of birth. So one way that we prepared is through kakinit, through tattoo. We have tattoos on our arms, on our legs, on our chest, on our scalp, in order to see if we can endure that pain. And after getting my birthing tattoos on my thighs, it was the most painful experience I ever had going through the motions of the machine on my thighs and feeling that pain made me feel grounded, made me feel like I was preparing and getting ready properly to welcome our daughter into this world. And when I finally had the moment of birthing her, I thought, I got this. <laughs> We've been doing this for centuries, since millennia. I got this. And she came out looking and acknowledging everybody. <laughs> and she said, hello world. I know I come into this world full of beauty and love because the first thing that I saw were the beautiful tattoos on my mother's legs. And that is the most important thing that I can do as an Inuit Kakinit practitioner to give to other women who are preparing, who have had children. As an Inuit tattooist, I've also learned that we as women need to heal. We need to heal from the historical traumas. And a long time ago, we tried to understand why they tattooed, and they didn't have to worry about that historical trauma that we had to go through at that time. And so when we think about how we're gonna continue moving forward with this tattooing tradition that we knew little about, in a way that's respectful, in a way that we know we're doing the right thing, recreating that ceremony that is so sacred is something that I'm working towards right now. Lighting the nanip, acknowledging the flame of our ancestors, is one way that I feel like I'm recreating the ceremony of our kakinit. Being able to acknowledge my family, where I come from, and my daughter, is another way 
that I'm trying to recreate the ceremony of sacredness with our traditional tattooing. I do the traditional skin stitching, which sounds very scary. It's like, what is that? The skin stitching is a technique that was done a long time ago using a needle and thread. It's a threaded needle dipped in ink that was created by the soot, created by the nanak. And it was passed into the top layers of the skin, in and out. And when the thread passed through the skin, the ink was left. In and out, in and out. Stitching back the wounds that may have been felt for a hundred of years, in and out. Feeling the pain of the potential childbirth that may be happening. That's the most important part. When people come to me and they say, how painful is it going to be? And I said, if you're afraid of pain, you're not ready for it. If you're fear, if you fear the pain, then you're not quite ready for it. And they come back and they say, okay, I'm ready. And it's the most beautiful ceremony and relationship that you can imagine. She's been present at some of my tattoos. So she's been aware. Yes. And she acknowledges it. She's going to be growing up in a world where tattoos are normal. And she's going to wonder, how come that woman doesn't have tattoos? Yeah, just like Dion was saying. How come that woman doesn't have her tattoos? And I'll say, she'll probably get them soon. Because with each woman today, maybe it's not an appropriate time to get your traditional knit when you get your menstruation cycle at 13, 14, 15, 16. Maybe now it's more of an appropriate time to get it when I felt like I was ready to have a child. Maybe it's appropriate time for you to get your kakinit when you graduate with your degree. Or maybe it's appropriate time when you get your kakinit when you feel like you're a complete, whole, full woman, when you're solid in your identity. Everybody has their own stories, and that's exactly why revitalization, and reconciliation and acknowledgement of our ancestors and our knowledge and, and traditional tattooing is so important to me and why I work to try and provide that service to women who may not have been able to get that just five years ago, just 10 years ago. Rihanna, and thank you for listening to me. So I'm just going to give you all a mic, and I'll ask a couple questions, and feel free to um, pass it around, um, and whoever feels interested in answering. Once again, my name is Ginger Donnell. I'm co-producing this with Kuaina Associates. Um, I work with Broken Boxes. Thank you all for being here. I feel very humbled to create the bridge and support to invite you to this incredible landscape. Um, the first question I would like to ask you all, um, and feel free as you're answering to introduce yourselves and um, what your protocols are, what, what type of work you do. Um, the first question is, what would you say was the most critical moment that shifted your community's desire to bring back your tattoo traditions? I, I don't think they have. I don't think they have brought back or come to that point, my community. 
Oh, who am I? Ne tuanya ne El Frank no ne tongve kukove koe raramuri koya hashmim. El Frank, I'm from Southern California. We're extinct. That's why my community hasn't um, come to grips with tattooing yet. They're still horrified because we're Hollywood Indians and it's not who you are but how you look. So tattoos are not always the best introduction when you're trying out for a part in a movie. My name is Tiffany Adams and I'm Chimoevi from, or Nuwu from Lake Havasu and the Mojave Desert. I'm also Konkau and Nisanan from the Sierra Foothills and the Bald Rock Territory. And um, there is, uh, there are few, a few people who are getting their tattoos now and my sister has hers, I have mine. So it's coming back slowly but surely, but um, I, I am seeing them more and more. Uh, I think it was a decision, um, well, first of all, it was greatly influenced by upriver people and Sage Lapina uh, wearing her uh, tattoo really bravely and being an inspiration for all of us and awesome role models. Um, and also, um, um, I think it was a, a desire to walk you know, arm in arm with our sisters too, that um, we see the things that they deal with, so we wanted to um, support that, and then also out of my own desire. It is very heavy. This is all very heavy. <laughs> for, for as long as I've had my tattoo, it, it's been very slow that, that I've seen more people get the markings on their face. Um, but some of the things we were talking about last night that I, that I wanted to mention is, um, though we didn't know each other necessarily, there was a time period that we were talking about last night um, in the 70s, and I definitely would, would like my elders here to speak on further, but for myself, as earth beings, we, the, the rock that you're going to, that you pray to, that rock is inside of you, it's your bones. The water that is inside of you is the same water that, that falls down and flows into the river that flows to the ocean that we're all connected to. We are that ocean. So the collective consciousness of, of coming out of this sleep, we are of those same people. So it'll be someone over here, someone over here, and we share that reawakening, we share that dreamscape of this becoming back to ourselves. So possibly in our own specific communities, we don't see it, but we must take up as we are that root that radical, that first point that pushes deep back into earth to make our connections. And for myself, that's what that was. Dilaha, Ayuki, Shiha Ushi, Lena Bauman, Masu Ada Patri. I'm Lena Bauman. My people come from the Salmon River. I'm Karuk and Shasta. 
Um, the question's um, a deep one because our communities were ripped apart. Both my parents were sent to boarding schools an, a world away. And I think through uh, the creator, he chose myself to come back at the time, it was a reawakening in the 70s for us, bringing back, there was a core group of elders and the uh, young people were coming to ask questions. And so these people took it upon themselves to teach this, but it wasn't everybody, it's just a core group. Because the overall community is saying, why do you want to stand up and be seen? It's painful, what they've done to us. They've killed us, they've raped us, they've sterilized us, they've removed us. Why do you want to stand up and be noticed again? And those core group of elders knew that those were the lessons that we had. And they brought it back and the young people started asking questions in the right way. And you, in the right way, in the right time. And they brought it back. And each year it gets stronger. When we started our ceremonies back in Northern California, it took all the tribes to make one round in the pit. Now each tribe has people more than enough to fill each round. So we, I started my journey back in the 70s with the revival. I'd finished school and was working with Indian youth and going, now what? So I prayed. Didn't know I was praying, but I prayed. And my husband was introduced to me in a dream. And then I saw him and I knew that's what I was meant to be. Because our childhood was so painful, all the things that our families endured, because our families are broken. They came real close to wiping us out. Our families are broken. And so, as a child, to live with that pain, I learned to listen to the spirit. I learned to listen to that voice in my heart. And so when that voice came and told me that he was a man, it took me about six months to convince him, but <laughs> we got there. And so our life has been dedicated to bringing back the, the ceremonies, bringing back the teachings. And every time we bring a little piece that used to be back, it's a win. For our ceremonies, every time we bring back, this is the traditional way you did that. Bring it back. It's alive, it's a part, it's a win. And so, but it doesn't come from your family because not everybody has the strength to stand up and carry that. But the more people that do, the more young people come along and they want to seek those um, answers, there's more people they can turn to to ask those questions. And so, when you're searching for your answers and you're looking uh, for direction, you pray about it and your answers might come from Central Valley, Southern California. Your spiritual family will give you strength and help you through your journey, but you never know where that's gonna be. So the communities that we work in and we bring back these traditions and we bring back these ceremonies and we try and heal the people, not just the ones in the physical, but the ones in the spiritual who were traumatized, murdered. You're healing your community. So the last thing I wanna say about this is the Talawa people at their Axis Muni, the center of their world, uh, experienced um, a massacre in 1852, and it's the second largest single massacre of native people in the United States history. And they came together when we were having our, our annual world renewal ceremony and they murdered and they burnt down that village. 
and that location was never accessible to the people to go and do anything about it till a few years ago. So he says, oh, we gotta, you know, we gotta do a candlelight vigil or something to help with that. And that was the start of our annual Nadar ceremony. So we went there, and they read some names, and then Lauren sang a song. And these little teardrop shards of ice started coming out of the sky. And he goes, oh, I better stop. I go, no, no, honey. You gotta sing it the second time. He sang it the second time. And the heavens unzipped, and all these just shards of ice came out of the sky. So we did our ceremony the last night, the last round. And we don't allow pictures, but I take pictures to document. And I had my daughter's digital, so we didn't look at it. So a week later, she's putting them on the computer. She goes, Mom, come look at this. So in that last round, we call it Naya Kush, when their hands are up and they're all happy, there were so many spirits in the dance house, you couldn't see the dancers. We released those spirits. So <laughs> I said, oh, that's really cool. So then um, now we get them a lot because we can see basket patterns, faces in them. So I asked my youngest grandson, I said, yeah, I was, we were talking about this one day. He goes, yeah, I just don't know if they come to visit or if they live here. He goes, silly grandma, they live here. But okay. <laughs> so it's healing our communities in ways we don't even know because we're bringing back something, bringing back another piece. And for you know, the guys, we don't have as much beautiful tats on our faces. These ladies do. We have other ones. And, um, but my journey in this as well is to go back and trace back to our traditional uh, ways of, of um, tattooing. And the old people told me to get a piece of obsidian, you know, and chink it off, you know, because it's sharper than any knife that can be created by a machine. And then we would slice the skin into that first layers and then um, smear... Um, a deer bone, you take a deer bone leg, you know, and then crack it, and after you cook it, you know, it's that nice, soft, gelatinous fat in there. And then collect soot, or, um, you know, made from pitch fire from wood on a rock, <clears throat> or um, the smoke that goes throughout the, the men's house, uh, this real fine powder, and mix that together and rub it in that. And then uh, take rib leaf, man uh, and you smash it all, make it juicy, and you put it on there, and then it makes it heal shut. Anyway, so we are on that journey now to restore our way of doing that. And so um, part of our journey here today, and your, your experiences, and it would be mine as well, uh, we have some very loving and wonderful communities that we have met. And they've come into our lives, and they've shared their gifts with us, and and uh, we're very appreciative of that too. So, so we have just a lot of work to do, um, a lot of good work to do, and things to bring forth from this process. So, that would be kind of, I guess, a little share from me. Thank you so much for sharing that manao, that the work that you all are doing. Um, the next thing that I would like to open up conversation around for you all is um, what has helped you and your community to get to where you are today and what advice would you have for others who want to um, set off in a similar direction? I once wrote a story, it's follow your dreams, never mind the sharks. So that's pretty much it, you know, because everybody will pull you down. It's just the way we've been trained for a long time. We can't, um, you know, we can't go in that direction without people pulling at us. But that's okay, you know, because nobody is strong enough to pull us down. 
They're strong enough to pull at us, but not strong enough to pull us down. What is it? Uh, so there's like a part of myself that says, you can't do that. And I hear this voice, and it's all the voices of every horrible man I ever, you know, every horrible man ever said to me. Um, and maybe a couple of women, but I remember the men clearly. I, re I hear their voices, and I hear the things that they said to me. And so I, I hear this voice that you can't do that or I'm afraid. And so instead of me, like I used to say, be quiet, you be quiet, stop it, you know, because I didn't want to hear them. But now I say, okay, and I go to her, and I tell her, it's going to be okay. And I know you're afraid but we're gonna go do this anyway, and we're gonna do it together, instead of pushing that part of myself away. So I think it was a little bit about community, is I just try to keep uh, following, uh, you know, in the footsteps of many of my mentors and sisters and peers, um, and you know, I drove off to go to school here at IAI at 50 years old, and um, I was a high school dropout, and a drug addict for many, many years, and you know, for me to go get my education was incredible, but I just keep putting one foot in front of the other and trying to be a living example for the young people uh, in my community and try to be the voice when they can't um, because a lot of them don't know how to comfort that person inside of them yet, but they're learning. You know, they're learning to have their voice and stand up for themselves and um, I think that this is part of it, the rejection of Western beauty standards. It's a, a healing you know, practice for past, present, and future. Um, you know, some of my paintings have images of women, well, a lot of them have images of women with their tattoos, whether they have them or not. And I remember the first time my mom saw, the first time she saw a painting I did of her, and she said, who is that? You know, and she walked up and she was touching her face. And she said, who is that? And her friend, um, her friend Emma said, that's you, Lois. And she said, oh, I would have had that. I should have, you know, I should have had that. So for her, it was like having that again. It was like, you know, healing the past and the present and the future. So that's what I just continue to try to do with my work and even in receiving this and, uh, yes. Hey, uh, uh, Hestam, up luli, yeshinas ibidare, bohem poyak, namtu palmi, tanai wintu, because I forgot that earlier. I work in a health clinic and at one point, I only had a few tattoos on my hand, and I got them removed um, to work in the health field. And, but they left scars behind, and I had them put back. Um, so I wear, I wear a lab coat every day, and I see patients in a regular clinical setting. And one of the most important things that I can do is, is I acknowledge my patients as human beings, you know? What do you choose to be called in terms of a name? What is your, who do you see yourself as a, as a tribal person, wherever you are from? What do you consider your indigenous roots to be? What is your support? You know, some of my patients are homeless, but they feel very supported. Some people live in large families and they don't feel supported. 
So I try to bridge those gaps of what that means to the individual. The acknowledgement of, of the individual as a human being is, is how I work in my community. And by continuing to be myself, you know, and I do um, use social media too because I'm able to um, touch people that I don't see. I'm able to um, bridge gaps between ageism um, and rant about things that make sense to me. I rant about diabetes. I rant about connections and community. I rant about our connection to earth and these things that matter to me. And they're things that matter to others, but they're not talking about them. So the, that is how I continue the, this practice. You know, when I, when I first got my tattoos, I didn't know anyone except Elle, who her tattoos were much smaller than they are today. Um, you know, so, so it's been 20 something years and now seeing so many more of our beautiful people coming forth to becoming themselves and standing as themselves and seeing that and working through my own fears to help others work through theirs. I'm also a product of um, a parent being in boarding school and genocide and we're survivors and we are resilient and we are connected and we're connected to earth and sky and that spirit and continuing to know that is, is how I do what I do. What was the question? <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering when somebody was gonna ask. Okay, um, what has helped you in your community to get where you are today and what advice would you have for others who want to set off in a similar direction? Pray, you always pray. Um, our religion is not Christian based. Where we live and where we all come from, the Ikreyev live there, the spirits of the rock, the land, the plants. They've always been there. They try to destroy us. They try to destroy our religion. They came close. But one person can make a difference because you go and you awaken those spirits and you ask for help. So you find where you're from. You find your prayer spot. Ours are high in the mountains. And you go there and you ask for help and you ask for guidance. We had to build our dance house and we hadn't had one to look at except for talking to the old people and a few sketches. So we didn't have examples or someone to talk to, so we would pray. We'd fast and, and our answers would come in our dream and going, oh God, yeah, that's easy. Why don't we think of that? So I think that's how the old people used to get their answers. Because the spirits are out there their purpose is to help you. So you go and you find that place and you ask the spirits for help and that'll come. So our life had been dedicated to bringing back ceremonies. Our life was examples for the younger people coming up because there weren't a lot of good ones out there. We had a lot of kids who um, couch surf. We've taken a lot of kids in over the years. Being in Indian families, you don't aren't raised by your parents, you're raised by your aunties, your uncles, your grandmas, your aunties, your friends, everybody, you're, you know, product of your community. And our communities were in such um, desperate shape 
that we thought bringing um, ceremony back as ceremony, not just culture, would help try and keep the world in balance a little bit. So our kids, they didn't do so good in the public education system, but, but they hold on to that pride of who they are, you know. And so we had a nephew, he had a really hard time, he had a really rough home life. But when he would come in and he would dance on that dance floor, he'd come out two feet taller because he had that pride in himself. So we dedicated our life to bringing back these ceremonies to make our kids stronger. We didn't have that when we were growing up. They had done away with our ceremonies. Even when we started, they tried to send in BIA narcs to arrest us for our feathers and our regalia. So you dedicate your life to it, but you find your answers through prayer. And you look for those answers and you help take you forward. So we had dedicated our life to this and I hadn't talked to anyone about uh, getting a chin tattoo, but they brought Keone out over 15 years ago and they called and said, do you want a tattoo? And I said, absolutely. And Lauren goes, you didn't talk to me about it first. I said, no, no, no. Because when you do this, this is very personal. You don't give people advice to have it. You don't tell them not to have it. That's their journey. And that's very personal. We each have our own reasons why we did it. I was lucky. Uh, both uh, my grand great-grandmas on both sides had it. And the one I chose was the one that um, my mom's um, great-grandmother wore. And so they came to our house. They did it as a ceremony. And they were an answer to a prayer for me. Because it's one more piece for me to make me whole. It gave me my voice back. Because the community I was raised in was very cruel. And I was no longer invisible to them. They had to see me. And so I had tears when, they was, when I was getting my 111. But it wasn't tears of pain. It was the tears that were being released from my childhood and how they made me feel. So you get your answers in different ways. We didn't have a traditional tattooist in our community. But the spirit and my heart brought us Keone. So he helped bring back one of my pieces. So sometimes your pieces that put you back aren't going to be from where you think they are. But you pray and let that answer come to you. I'm just going to say, too, that, uh, to add on to the, our, re, our working of restoration um, is um, um, we look to our friends. So Thomas Daishri, Thomas Banyaka came and spoke to us in the 1970s. And uh, so I'm thinking, my gosh, this guy is from the Southwest, and he's Hopi, and you know, they still have their traditions and language intact and the matrilineal society and all this kind of stuff. So I was very excited to hear his presentation to us. And, um, but my point is that, and, he, and well, I want to share this too. So, you know, they teach you in school, get your tablet out, write everything down. He says, stop. I'm here to talk to your heart, not to your book. If you write it down, you'll forget. Listen to me. Oh, we all put our books down spoke and remember everything he said, you know, still in your heart. And so it was over. And so I got a chance to speak with him, you know, just on the side. And I says, hey, you know, I said, we're doing work here in California, trying to bring ourselves back. And so I said, uh, we're working on our world renewal ceremony. And uh, I said, so our, we have concerns about, you know, completeness of it or wholeness of it or parts of it or whatever. And he goes, well, you know, back at home at Hopi, we'll, elders will get together and say, Hmm, you know that we used to do a so-and-so dance. Ah, we haven't done that for 40 years. 
Oh, we haven't done that one for 50 years. But you know what? Why don't we do it? And so they get to, all the guys and the people all get together and they yak about it. He was telling me in the Kiva and, and they discuss it. And then he says, uh, okay, let's start. Get everything ready. Ready to have the dance. And then he says, you know what we, decide, what we do? And this was a gem. He said, what it is in one decade is what it is. It's no longer what it was. It's no longer what it will be. It is what it is. And that friendship, that word, those words, that knowledge, that sharing across communities was what we needed to hear. So you put it on for 10 years, and that's what it is. You don't worry about anything else, you know. So this work is wide, and it's, you know, and, and I really love the, the idea of that taproot, you know, putting that in the ground and getting it attached back into the ground and rooting, and, you know, and, and that's all a part of this work. And, and we were trying to figure out, you know, when did this all kind of take off out there, you know? And it was like, oh, I think it was around 1970 or something. And then I asked in Hawaii, and then it's like, what was going on in the 70s? Like, there was the stars lined up, or the planets went sideways just right, or <laughs> think, think, think creation. Well, thank you all so much for sharing with us. And um, when we have our open studios, after lunch, everyone will be around for you to ask questions and have conversation. And we're going to move into the next part of our program. And I wanted to thank you all so much for sharing with us. Aloha, my kako. Ovao kori kamehana kala, hotam. He haumana valino o kahuna kaui sua suruape kioni nunes. Mahalo ena. Kamaina or kia vahi kia aina, no kaho kipana or komako poe hawaii na keki o haloa na poe ho makia o kopena kuke. I'm here today to speak a little bit about uh, my journey as a haumana of uh, the Hawaiian tattoo master Kiana Nunes. Um, I'm actually one of Four of his current students, uh, my big brothers are uh, Kamali Kupono Hanohano, uh, Kalama Kuaka, Hawaii uh, Suza, and uh, Kikali Loa Gomes. Um, and the four of us, uh, we kind of grew up together since we were 14, and uh, we always knew we were going to do something uh, greater than the rascal things we did in our youth, and we were blessed to uh, be united through our teacher. I can speak a little bit about the time I met my teacher. Um, I think I was like either 15 or 16 years old. Uh, one of my uh, teachers from high school, Carl Powell, um, brought him in uh, for a demonstration. And uh, I wasn't a student of his at the time, but um, I think that's when I learned uh, one of my first lessons from him. Uh, he, he pointed outside at a papaya tree and he said, oh, look at the trunk, you know, look at the patterns on the trunk. And uh, there's patterns in everything. And I think uh, that, that's always fascinated me. You know, we, we have our, our verbal language, but we also have our uh, visual language. And uh, it's, a, it's a reflection of the lives of our ancestors. And um, although, you know, on the surface we live, it seems as a different life, it's, we're still living the same life as them. You know, we're, we're the living flesh of them. And uh, that's what these patterns reflect. Uh, the same uh, stories that uh, in their lives, you know, we, we live the same things in, in this time. 
Uh, I, I always like to, to think about, you know, like uh, our ancestors, we really understood uh, the patterns around us, not only visual, you know, on, on the things we saw, but the patterns in time, cycles of the moon, you know, the solstice. Um, and, and that's something I've observed in my journey uh, with Kumu. Um, he taught us through his lineage, through his Suluape lineage, uh, the tradition of the tools comes from Taima and Tilafainga, the twins from Samoa who retrieved the tools from uh, Fiti or Fiji. Um, in my own life, I've been able to observe that our teacher has done the same thing for us. He went to Samoa, um, and through his teacher, uh, Sulape, Paolo the Great, he, he returned the tools to Hawaii. And that, that sound of the moli and the ha-ha was, was silent until our teacher returned the tools. Um, and it's a catchy tune, the rhythm of the ha-ha and the moli. And I remember, you know, from that moment I, I heard it at age 15, we were always fascinated. Um, with this man and this practice, you know, that has been long before us. Uh, so, some of the, the visual poetry, you know, of this practice and, and the poetry of our ancestors, our, our, our tools are called the moli. And the moli um, literally refers to the albatross bird, which is a, a seabird, a huge wingspan, like a six-foot wingspan, an amazing bird. Um, they spend, you know, days in the air going to uh, pick up the groceries for their kids. Um, and um, our, our kumu has, uh, has followed this path, the path of the moli. Uh, we, we've always been a, a, a people who traveled the world, you know, from uh, Maui to Kahai and uh, uh, King David Kalakaua. He was, you know, they say he was one of the first um, leaders to circumnavigate the globe. This is back in the 1800s. And um, I've been able to observe my teacher do the same thing and to share our stories, you know, around the world. They say the the Moli can get around the world in 30 days, and I believe it. I've seen it with my own eyes. My teacher has brought these tools, you know, around the whole world, and he's um, continued the legacy of his, his father through the lineage of Sulua Paolo, who did the same, who, who shared the tools with us. You know, we, uh, we didn't have the practice went, went asleep for, for a brief time. But um, our, our teacher was able to return the tools to Hawaii. And uh, 100 years from now, you know, they'll say your name. 200 years from now, 1,000 years from now, um, it'll, it'll be the same story of Taima and Tila Fanga. And you have done the same for us. And uh, we are forever grateful. Uh, mahalo kumu. Um, introduce my teacher. I just want to thank you guys for, for inviting me to, to come and talk uh, a little bit about the things that is important to us. Uh, can you change the slide? This is, this is my teacher. Uh, Sua Suluape Paulo. He died in 1999, in November. So, 
And so, what he has done is he's, he was a catalyst for the reintroduction of traditional tattooing throughout the Pacific. And in essence, throughout many, many areas of the world. Because through him, I've been able to help Filipino tattooists, tattooists from Taiwan, tattooists from Tahiti, tattooists from Aotearoa, tattooists from pretty much all over. And he was one that was a catalyst for this. Uh, unfortunately, he was taken away too early. Sometimes when we look at uh, traditional tattooing, we look at it in ways of, of being very isolationist. We look at it in a very nationalistic perspective. And that's good, because we have to. We have to protect ourselves. Yeah? But we also have to acknowledge where, it came, where, where we came from, where it came from. And so sometimes we don't want to acknowledge those things because it's not something that's popular. Um, but tapping, tattooing, the, 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 the way that we do it now in the Pacific originated probably in India with the Naga people. And they had that. And it traveled all the way into the Pacific. And sometimes we as Polynesians don't want to accept that. But that's the truth, you know. Uh, from, the, from Taiwan to Thailand to, uh, well, from Thailand actually, to Taiwan to uh, the Philippines. That technique survived. And it is a difficult technique for any of you who do tattooing. For the most part, it's almost like drawing. And even when you do uh, hand pricking and, and sewing of sorts, there is a kind of a intuitive nature to it, kind of. When you tap, it's the most unintuitive way of tattooing that you can ever, ever imagine. Because guess what? I'm right-handed, but the design and the tattoo is laid out by my left hand. And you have to feel the person's skin through the sticks. And it's that rhythm of the sticks that helps bring that mana into the person. Yeah. For us, tattooing was very sacred. And that's one of the challenges, I think, in this society today, is to me the highest, and this is my personal view, Oh, you can change the slide, <laughs> sorry. Uh, my personal view is when you see this type of thing, you, this is a Hawaiian traditional tattoo needle. When you see this type of things, what do you think of? You think of an archaic way of doing tattooing. You think of something that happened in the past that no longer exists in the, in the present uh, day. But that's not true. That's not true. We still exist, we still thrive. These tools, traditional Hawaiian tools, were found in a cave. And it's several hundred years old, probably about 500 years old. I could lash it up tomorrow, and I could use it, and it would be very, very good. 
and we still don't have the technology today. With all the technology that we have, we cannot, we cannot reproduce this tool. To give you an idea, you see the markers over there? From, from here to there to that upper longer one is one inch. So it's just a little over an inch tall and just a little over a half inch wide. And it has 36 teeth made with no metal. You cannot use metal when you make this. Yeah. We don't have that knowledge anymore. And this is sacred stuff. You can turn the slide. The hands are important for us. Now, one thing I gotta say is, you know, you cannot rely on Disney to be uh, the, the, the bearers of history and all of that. Um, you know, somebody was saying that um, because men and women had tattoos on their hands that they saw in this uh, cartoon um, that was talking about voyaging and stuff, uh, that this girl put her hand out like this and they said that that was proof that women were navigators because you had their tattoos on the hand. You know what? That was Nainoa Thompson. Um, that was his thing. It was not a traditional thing. It was something that was created uh, in today's society because he didn't know how to measure the distance between the sun and the horizon. And I know this because I was a crew member of Hokulea. So um, be very careful because the narratives are changing. And that's dangerous. That's very, very dangerous. Yeah. So the challenge for us today is to understand that the highest or the most complete form of colonialism, of being colonized, is when you take that narrative and change it because you think that it's right. and it's not based on any tradition. So the sacred becomes secular. Yeah. And the most dangerous things is not when a person from a different culture tells you this, but it's when a person who has a brown face tells you this. Then it becomes dangerous because then we lose that small essence of who we are as a people because it no longer exists. And in today's society of huge social media impact, the narrative can change like that. And it can pick up steam like that. And so that's the challenges. You know, a lot of people say that, well, there's a lot more people doing traditional tattooing. You know what? We are in grave danger of becoming ex extinct. Because if the narrative changes, if the sacred becomes secular, then guess what? Anybody can do it. And everybody is trying to do it. And we're helping them along as Native people by changing the narrative so it allows them to do it. And that's dangerous. So you can change the slide. Yeah. So sometimes when you look at these pieces, um, 
there's no understanding because it's nice graphically and it's, it's impactful. But the re reality is, as, as was stated before by Terangitu Netana, who I've known since he was uh, about 40 pounds lighter. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> Anyway, uh, as it was stated by him, you know, for us, each of the patterns have certain meanings. Each of the patterns belong to us. It belongs to all of you guys. You guys' patterns, and you know what? Every single uh, culture out there, in a sense, uh, practiced one form of body decoration or another. And it belongs to you guys. It doesn't belong to anybody else. It belongs to you guys. Yeah. And I'm honored that I can help certain people. I'm honored that I was able to go to Northern California 15 years ago and tattoo people's faces um, because I never thought I would be asked to do something like that. Um, and I'm honored for that, but it's not mine. And I told him that, you know, I can do the work, but you have to do the ceremony. I can do the ceremony on my part, but you have to do the ceremony on your guys' part. You know, I can wake up the tools as I know. I can bring mana to the tools as I know, but you need to be able to do the ceremony on your behalf so that you make those, uh, those lines, those uh, tattoos on your face alive. Yeah. Because I can't do that. I don't know it. So I can't do that. When I did Terengitu uh, Netana's um, face, I told him, you have to draw it and you have to do the karakias, uh, the prayers for that. I can do the prayers on my side, but you have to do that. And so it's important to understand that each of the patterns from your own cultures belongs to you guys, nobody else. And you should challenge anybody who's wearing it that you know is not from who you are. Because if, if people don't do that, then it's just going to be widespread. Because guess what? We do beautiful stuff. It's very powerful. And people want this. Yeah. And I can tell you that the only people in Hawaii that I if you ever want to get a Hawaiian tattoo, and I'm not able to do it, let me know. Because I can tell you who can do it. Because there's people out there that are professing to be experts that are not. But that happens throughout all our societies. You know, you guys are nodding because you probably know a couple guys uh, in the back of your minds that, you know, you, you kind of want to get one of those dolls and start poking needles in. Yeah. Um, can you do the next slide? And sometimes we don't give ourselves enough credit because we don't believe. Yeah. We become colonized. We believe these things. And so somebody says, oh, well, you can't sterilize bone tools. Guess what? They never tried. Yeah. 
He said, well, you can't put it into an autoclave. I said, why would I want to put it into a 19th century uh, higher version of a pressure cooker anyway? Because that's what an autoclave is. It's a pressure cooker that's glamorized. Yeah. In fact, I know tattooists that cook food in there. Honestly, <laughs> I'm not, I, I am not lying. I'm not lying because it is. It is a pressure cooker. So we, we got to look at modern techniques because Denmark, Denmark is a fascinating place because they have, they have uh, grass roofs, yeah? And you're thinking, what does that have to do with tattooing? Okay, the grass roofs in Denmark, the thatch roofs, um, they said at one point uh, was part of their national identity. So they weren't going to get rid of it, but it was a fire hazard. So instead of getting rid of it, they looked at ways of making it safe, and they found ways of making it safe. Yeah? So instead of saying that, well, you can't sterilize bone and just leave it at that, you look at ways of making it safe. Yeah? In every major operating room in the nation, when the operating room is not in use, you know what they, they do to it? They flood it with UV light because the UV light kills virtually everything. So why don't we use that technique, which is a 21st century technique, which creates ozone, which is another sterilant, to start sterilizing our tools? Because we think that an autoclave, a pressure cooker, is a better way of doing it. So you got to challenge these things. Yeah, I'm a traditionalist, but guess what? If there's new technology out there, I'm going to look for it. I'm going to try and utilize it to my advantage so I can do this type of work. And you know how amazing our people were? Yeah, this, you see that top part? Look at, look at that top part, the design, yeah? This design is a design that is correlated with a certain type of lizard in Hawaii. Yeah. Should I do the next slide? This is an eye of a certain type of lizard. Yeah. Now, if you don't think that our ancestors was much more in tune with our world than we are, then uh, don't vote for president next time around. No, <laughs> anyway. No, uh, but um, I think it's really important for, for us to understand that the narrative is changing, but we have to control the narrative. We as Native people have to control that narrative. Because if we do not control it, if we don't take it to heart, it will be lost for our children and for the future generations forever. And we are in very dangerous times at this point. So thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate this. Yeah.